lost as we've moved further from the standpoint of the great truths that we covered in the first 11 verses, I hope that you'll hold on to. And, of course, that of great consequence. And if you know Christ, if there had been a time in your life when you came to understand that you were a sinner and you needed to trust Christ as your Savior, that um, when you did, if in fact you have, then these things in chapter 5 at the beginning are all encouraging words of security. We talk about eternal security, and that's really what it is. The very first verse about being justified by faith, if you have been, you have peace with God. Been at war, but the war is over, and you and God are, are at peace. And God's the one who activated it, pursued it, and accomplished it. And then verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand. And that grace is justification by faith. So we have access into this grace of justification. We have it by faith. But that access also, as I remind you, the only other two places that word access is found is in the book of Ephesians. And in those two passages, Paul's talking about access to the Father. So this access into the grace of justification also gives you a second access, as it were, and that access is into the presence of God and makes it possible for you to go in and, as it were, plead your case, pray and beseech Him and offer up, as it were, your needs to Him. So that's the point. Those, And we mentioned many others, but those are the key points at the very first two verses. But we're in verse number 12 and following. And today we come to the other side, all that sort of the, the, the fruit of salvation. Now we're talking in verses 12 through 21 about the root of salvation. The fruit of salvation is the security of the believer, all of which those first 11 verses deal with. But when you come to chapter number 5, verse number 12 through 21, you begin, Paul does, to almost in reverse order, he begins to explain what the root of this is all about. What's the root problem here? What's the root from which salvation uh, really grew out of? Why was it needed? Why was it necessary? And so so he begins in verse 12, as we covered last week. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And I remind you, the word sinned in verse 12 in the Greek is a word that grammatically that means something that happened in the past that has present circumstance. So here he is, and the reference in verse 12, for all have sinned, is not that we do constantly do it now, though that's true. That's not what verse 12 and verse number 12, the last word sinned, means here. It means we all sinned in Adam back there, and with these consequences that are presently before us, therefore all men are going to die. That's really what it's saying. Verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Verse number 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude or likeness of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Verse 16, And not as as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Verse 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of the grace of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. That's really the end of a parenthesis, as you know it in some of your English Bibles, and so we'll stop there at verse number 17. The message entitled today is The Solution to Sin. To make such a declaration of a title, the first thing you have to understand to embrace the ideal of a solution to sin, you have to first embrace the fact that sin is a problem. And if you don't believe sin is a problem, then you've you got a problem already with this text because that text is dealing with the idea that sin is a problem. Somebody wrote this. I didn't. Wish I had. They said they referred to the sin problem as, quote, a dark side of the line that passes through every single human heart. Now, let me ask you some real personal questions, two to be exact. One, have you ever secretly, secretly delighted in someone else's fall, failure, or demise? Have you ever watched violence and wickedness on television, in a video movie, and sit there and actually enjoy the carnage that it produced. You see, someone wrote that those are just two evidences that in the human heart there is a dark side. No matter how long you've been saved, no matter how long you've walked with the Lord, no matter how many times you've read your Bible through from Genesis to Revelation, there is still in your heart a dark side. 
And that dark side is part of that which you inherited from Adam when he sinned. And you received, as it were, that sin nature. And if someone would come along and say, well, I'm, I'm just not sure sin is a problem, then I would ask you a simple question that you could ask any single week of the year. If sin is not a problem in the human heart, how would you account for the young girl that the Daily Journal reported on this last week on Tuesday, April the 27th, and it said, spate of fights stuns officials. Authorities say girls taking on violent roles once held by boys. Here's what it says. A 12-year-old girl by Nicole Towns is out of a coma but still struggling to recover after being beaten and stomped at a birthday party in a, in a beating that was shocking, not just because of its savagery, but because it meted out by girls. Authorities say it is symptomatic of a disturbing trend around this country. Girls are turning to violence more often with terrifying intensity. This chief of police in the city of Baltimore says, this is vicious, I want to hurt you kind of fights. It's a nationwide phenomena and it's catching us all off guard. The police and the prosecutor said the cold's beating February 28th began when a boy at the party acting on a dare kissed Nicole on the cheek. The other children exploded with ease and awes and laughter according to the police report. The 36-year-old mother of the birthday girl apparently was offended because the boy was supposed to be her daughter's boyfriend. So the mother allegedly urged her daughter to, quote, handle your business, end of quote. An order, police said, meant the girl was supposed to defend the family's honor. Nicole was scratched, beaten, kicked, stomped by as many as six women and girls, police said, and was in a coma for three weeks. Charged in the assault were a birthday girl, 13-year-old, her mother, her 19-year-old sister, and three other girls, ages 13, 14, and 15. They charged a 24-year-old woman who lived with Nicole and charged her with child abuse and neglect for leaving the girl at the party. The pastor, Reverend Durrell Williams of the Full Gospel Deliverance Church, quote, we're just stunned and disgusted and we still can't understand how such a thing could happen. Pastor, I can tell you, because in the every human heart, there is a streak of sin. There's a dark side of evil in every human being that's ever been born, and it's struck by and was created by and passed on by, as it were, by our relationship to Adam. And that's exactly what the Bible is saying. Something else to be noted, you can tell that people know that it's sin because they try to change its names. I ran across this list this week. It said, man calls it an accident, God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a blunder, God calls it blindness. Man calls it a defect, God calls it a disease spiritual attack. Man calls it a chance. God calls it a choice. Man calls it error. God calls it enmity. Man calls it fascination. God calls it a fatality. Man calls it infirmity. God calls it iniquity. Man calls it luxury. God calls it leprosy. Man calls it liberty. God calls it lowliness. Man calls it trifle. God calls it tragic. Man calls it a mistake. God calls it madness. Man calls it weakness. God calls it willfulness. Why would you change the name of these things and were it not that you were trying to cover something? And that's exactly the point of this person who lists these things. They're trying to cover it up. They're trying to change it. Why do they call uh, uh, abortion a woman's choice? Why don't they call it what it is? The killing of a baby, a live baby. Why do they call the baby a, a, a fetus rather than a baby? Well, because it's easy to kill a fetus. You know, you can go out and just can stomp a roach and you won't feel too bad but if someone explained to you all the things in a baby tissue and all that's there and what that's going to be another story going to be a little harder to sell that to the general public so we simply switch names we change it we soften it and that's what people do about sin we try to make sure that it comes across that we who may commit it are pretty respectable people but nonetheless the fact is we know our hearts and what's more moving and amazing god knows them better than we and he knows that in our hearts there is that black, dark side and that anything is possible. Billy Sun said this, and of course he was that fiery evangelist from years past. He said, I'm against sin. I kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory. So the Lord calls me home and it goes to perdition. I agree with him, and I appreciate that kind of spirit. And I say this to you. You better fight sin in your life 
as long as you live. Because otherwise, it is the kind of thing that, like it did in the Garden of Eden, seemed so innocent, but then grew so big, so fast, and created such havoc. In this passage of Scripture before us in chapter 5 today, there are many things. The good news is listed here that God identified sin as a major problem. And as he identified it as a major problem, what's exciting is he also provided an absolute, exact, equal solution to it. And so today I want you to listen with heart and with mind and soul to what God says about this matter, this issue of sin. First of all, God has established in the inspired text of Scripture that we are all sinners by our union, our connection to Adam as our federal head. I can't stress that enough because I certainly personally as a pastor uh, in talking to people, I am convinced that many folks don't get this yet. Many people think that they're going to head, are going to hell for the sins they committed. That is not true. You are not going to hell for the sins you have committed. You're going to hell because you have a connection in the federal head of Adam. And if you lived and were born into this world and you never committed one single sin, you would still go under the title that the Scripture gives you as being a sinner. Because the sinner in the text of Scripture is not implied initially that you are practicing sinner. Because the fact is that did you know that every baby in the nursery in the New Life Baptist Church is a sinner by birth? Have you got a hold on that? Every baby in the nursery is a sinner by birth. We're born sinners. That's what that means. See, we, we use that phrase, but somehow we don't get it. Yeah, we're born sinners. Nursery is full of sinners. And the fact of the matter is that we will, as we get up to a point where we can, we'll make choices, and those choices will be sinful because they're born out of a prerogative of sin that's born out of a sin nature which we were born with and which we got from, oh, Adam, back there in the beginning. That's why verse number 12 says what it says. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into this world, and therefore the last phrase said all sinned. How'd they all sin? They weren't all even born yet. How could they all have sinned at that point? They couldn't have except in one thing. As they come unto this life and are born, they are sinners in their attachment to the federal head of Adam. So I'm telling you, if you have lived a perfect life up to this point, then there is absolutely no sin that can be charged to your account. If you die without believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and going through what John 3 says is the new birth, you will die as a sinner and split hell wide open. I'm telling you that. It is not a matter of you doing the best you can. I'm Boy, I, I just abstain from sin. I'm doing the best. You can do the best you want to do and the best you're possibly capable of, and it still won't change that. We're born sinners. So that's the first thing you need to get a grip on. The next thing is Paul's established in verse number 13 and 14 that even when there was no formal law written down, that, of course, is the law of Moses. That's what he's alluding to. That even when this law was not written down, what he says in verse number 13 and 14 is that man still died. And the point and the question you ask is, wait a minute, if there was no law to be violated in a written form, then, and so how could you say these people died? Because they had sinned in Adam, and two chapters 2 and 3 of Romans set forth very clearly that there is a law that works in our being, creation, conscience. Those laws are already established, and man, as being connected to Adam, and by his own volition to make choices contrary to God's will, man was established as a sinner by his relationship to Adam and by his practice of doing that which was contrary to God's inner law of conscience. So the consequences in this text of Scripture is Paul saying whether there was a law or not does not mean that just because Moses hadn't gotten the law from God on Mount Zion does not mean that man can be excused from his behavior. And by the way, notice the phrase in verse number 14 where he says, Moses, uh, and nevertheless death reigned, was overpowering from Adam to, to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the likeness or the similitude of Adam's transgression. What the point? Just this. Adam sinned in a direct disobedience to what God said. In the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam, Look, Adam, don't eat of that tree. If you eat of that tree, you'll die. First off, Eve was not even on the scene when that command was given to Adam. So Adam takes what God said. Eve goes out, hears from Satan as a serpent, enticed and seduced, and she takes of the tree. She says, This tree is good for food. It, it tastes great. Why don't you have some? 
She had not received the order. She had not received the command. Adam had. But does Adam walk up and say, look, honey, uh, you're not supposed to eat this tree. Before you ever came on the scene, before ever God operated on me, took out from my side a rib and, and created you from the dust of this earth, before that ever happened, God showed up and said, don't eat of that tree. So love put that apple down and let's get back to the house. But that's not what he did. So the scripture says, Adam being in the transgression. Why? Because he directly disobeyed what God said. He went along with his wife. He said, well, can you blame the guy for that? Yes, I blame him every day. Look what he got us into. It's true. He ate her, ate them out of house and home, and he's really made the rest of us a mess. Because he's our federal head. He was the representative of the whole of the human race. The good news is that in the text of Scripture before us today, there are two key words. They're like keys that hang on a wall outside of an entryway that you want to go through. I want you to see these two words, and it'll help us, I think, to see what God's plan and solution for the sin is. The first word is the word gift. You'll see it in verses 15 through 21. In fact, you'll see it six times. The word gift. This gift, as it's recorded in this text, is the gift of God. Here's the good news. The solution to man's sin problem is a gift. That's the good news. The, the, the solution to man's sin problem is a gift. And I said last week, there's something unique about a gift. One, you don't work for it. You're just given the gift. You know, they don't, they don't hand you a gift and say, now this will cost you $10.50. It didn't cost you anything. It is a gift. It is a gift. So the problem of sin in your life, in my life, in the life of everybody else, God has the solution, and the solution is it's a gift. So if you read the text and read it carefully, you'll see that that's the first point he makes, and that's the first key. The second one is, is the word grace. You'll find the word grace interspersed, as you will, the word gift, but the word grace is only found five times. The catch is God's gift is made possible by what? God's grace. God's gift is made possible by God's grace. So it's not anything about you and me that makes God look down and say, oh, those are wonderful people. I'm going to give them grace. Or my grace is, is just going to be showered upon them. And in the midst of my grace, I'm going to give them a gift, which will be the solution to their sin. That's not how it came. Grace does not look at its object. Grace just extends his kindness. And that's exactly what God did. God didn't look down here and said, I think those folks have got some potential. I think the folks at the New Life Baptist Church have got possibilities. And I think I'm going to reach down there and do a work. That's not what God did. And that's not what God saw. What God did was he did for us being, in our case, unworthy, unmerited, undeserving, and in no way recommended to the grace of God. But that's what makes it so amazing and so exciting and so wondrous. The choir song this morning. Amazing grace, amazing love. That's what makes it so. There was nothing in us that recommended us to the good grace and the great love of God. Now, the rest of the text is taken up with what I call contrast. I want you to note them if you would. Look at the contrast in the text between the condemning act of Adam and what we call the redemptive act of, of Jesus Christ, because that's really where the contrast will come. Look at verse number 15. He starts out, but not as. The little word as uh, that's obviously a contrasting word or comparison word. So not as the offense, so also is the free gift. That's telling you that there's a contrast coming up. Then look, it's the same in verse 16, and not as. It's not the same here. It's different. There's a distinction here he's saying. There's a contrast in these. And you have to watch that in the scriptures when you have a as written into a verse. Is it a contrast, comparison, or whatever? In this case, it's a contrast, and he's explaining that. The verse 15 goes further, and the contrast is clearly seen between the free gift of Christ and the offense of Adam. You see that word in verse number 15 that is for gift there is the word chrisma. Now, chrisma gift is referred to that which is given with special graciousness. Special graciousness is sometimes uh, referred to among some churches as grace gifts. And that's a fair word, interpreting and, and, and translating it from the word charisma. Charisma. It's a grace gift. And, and when it's used about referring to what God has given or when it's given by God, it refers to that which is right and good and acceptable in God's eyes. If it's a grace gift and God gave it, it is good, it's acceptable, and it's right. 
if it's talking about something that's given by God, something God gives us rather than something that's given to God, the ideal of the word and the definition carries it on just a bit further. It means that which is given with absolutely, completely, apart from any human desert or merit. That's what it means. There's absolutely nothing there that is worthy of me giving you this, but I'm giving it to you anyway. And that's what it means in this context because that's the way it's used here. Something else to be noted, you see the word in verse 15, offense, but not as the offense. The offense here is used of that what Adam did. And the, the Greek word that's used for this word is uh, as the basic meaning of getting off of a set path or going where you should not go. You've, uh, you've walked in places where you've seen a little sign maybe uh, on courthouse lawns or wherever and it says no trespassing. That word comes from this word, offense. Because in occasions when the context would bid it so, it would lend itself to say, uh, you're going in the wrong direction. You're stepping out of bounds. You're out over here where you shouldn't be, and that's no trespassing territory. Well, what it means in this context is that Adam committed an offense. Adam committed a trespass. He went somewhere he should not have gone. And what he did and where he went was he did what God said don't do. And by the way, every single time you go where God says don't go, uh, you trespass. And that's why the scriptures uses that phrase and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And the fact of the matter is, it is going where you should not go. What brought all mankind under the condemnation of sin was Adam trespassing somewhere he should not have trespassed, going where he should not have gone. And I say this to you, that's the way it is with your life. When you sin, you go where you should not go and where God has drawn a line and said, don't cross. And we cross it. We say, well, I don't think it'd be that bad. I mean, I know so-and-so over here and he crossed it and he's not that bad. That's not the point. God says, don't. It has ramifications. By the way, don't ever forget it. Every sin has ramifications. And they're not always spelled out in a bulletin. They're not always listed in a text and says, here they are, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. It sometimes will catch you blindsided, but they're nonetheless the ramifications for sin. Now look at the differences in this effect. You see in verse 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through this offense, this trespass of one, that's Adam, many be dead. That's the first thing you understand. You know what happened when Adam did what he did when he trespassed? Many died. By the way, that doesn't just mean many in the context of uh, not everybody, but a few, but some, but many. It doesn't mean it that way. Many here means everybody that followed being born into this world after Adam. That's everybody. Many. So the word there in the Greek language would carry with not just a few and not just some, but everybody who followed Adam come under this condemnation. When Adam sinned, what happened? Everybody was sentenced to death. That's exactly what verse number 15 is saying. For if through the offense, the trespass of one, all or many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And uh, that's an interesting thing there. Death passed upon all men, women, boys, and girls born after Adam. And that's the many. But then it comes back for the comparison or contrast with Christ. And it says much more. You see, the sin of Adam indeed brought death, but the grace of God, the gift by grace, did much more. Did much more how? Did it create more sin? No, no, no. He addressed the sin problem and gave a solution. And it was that he didn't simply rebuild the road so mankind could come back to God and start all over again. That's not what he did. But rather, Jesus Christ not only reversed the curse, as we call it, but he provided the way, the means whereby sinful man can be redeemed and can share in the righteousness of Christ and someday the glory of God. That's what he says. He did it much more than just restore he not only rebuilt the road, he turned the whole thing around. And all those of us who deserve hell and lake of fire forever and ever, he changed our destiny. He gave us abundant life here and now. He gave us things that we could never dreamed of. And some things we don't understand, though we're told we got them. I fully don't understand the great glory of God. I admit that. But the scriptures make it very clear. Someday I'll be glorified and I will enjoy the glory of God. Whatever that is, I'm looking forward to it. I don't know what all it involves, and I don't know what all it will be, but I do know this. God says, you'll have it, because that's part of what I paid for for you, and it's yours. 
In this context, proof again that God's grace is greater than man's sin because the words, much more. What Adam did and created such a problem, Jesus Christ did in contrast to that, much more to make it much better for you and me. Notice too in verse 15, the use of that word many at the beginning of the verse. You ought to make a note of it. That many means all those that are born after Adam. But look at the many at the end of the verse. The use of many at the end of that verse means those who through faith in Jesus Christ have been born again. That's the many there. In verse 15, For if through the offense of many those be born after Adam be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace which is by one man Jesus Christ hath abounded unto many. Who? All those who have trusted Jesus Christ and His finished work of the cross. I have all of that because of my relationship to Him. What did happen here and what's exciting about this issue of death is the power of death has been broken. The power of death has been broken by Jesus Christ for all of those who believe on Him. First Timothy, ran across it this week in my devotions, excuse me, Second Timothy, chapter number 1, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Abolished death. Does that mean that Christians will never die? That means that Christians will have a life like they have never had before. And it does not mean that you'll live in the flesh forever, but it does mean you'll keep on living. I say this to you. Mrs. Luttrell is not dead. She sleepeth. And she is alive and more alive this morning than she has ever been in all of her existence. And I say to you that every believer who dies, he just changes locations. But his life there is eternal, perpetual, and he received that when he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ who himself said, I abolish death. It's taken care of. Don't worry about it. It's a transition? Absolutely. Is it difficult? Most assuredly. But is it something to which we get bent out of shape and get stirred and moved and torn all apart? No. We're to be anxious for nothing. And secondly, we're to be aware that we're to sorrow not as others which have no hope. What is our hope? Our hope is in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us and changed our lives and given us this assurance that this is transitional when we leave this life and we'll enter into the presence of the Lord. It's like a fish out of water. A uh, fish in water, he's comfortable, does great. But you can't imagine a fish living on the land, and yet there are some who do. The fact is that, that this body was made for this time. And it's going to wear out and, and it's going to be destroyed by diseases and accidents and all of the things that go with it, mainly because of sin. And when that happens, to be absent from this body, when this body gets to a point where it's no longer livable in, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that doesn't mean we wait a week. It doesn't mean we wait for, for 48 hours just to make sure everything was cleared down here and all the paperwork's been done and, you know, we're really saved and the church says it. No, 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 this is personal. It's between you and Christ. And the moment that you die in Christ, you immediately, immediately are in the presence of the Lord. And I say to you, you need to take heart in that. And that's exactly what our Lord is talking about in the context of this passage of Scripture. And by the way, that's also what our Lord gave to Paul the Apostle under inspiration when he wrote these words. And these were some of my favorite when we went through 1 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. Listen carefully. He says, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to light or brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this morning, you don't have to fear death. And by all means, as a believer, you ought not. You ought not have any fear of death and dying. You ought to be able to smile at it and, and quote that passage. Oh, oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Talk to me. You see, it's almost the thing as if the Lord Jesus Christ standing there and saying, it has no power over you. I've already abolished death in your behalf. When you leave this life, you enter into my presence and you'll be there forever. And I've taken care of things. And it's, it's, it's so far above what you've experienced here. As good as your best days, it could not compare to that. 
And I encourage you to keep your mind stayed on that great stabilizing secure truth. You see, the condemnation of Adam's sin is reversible. That's what Romans chapter 5 is saying. The good news is from this chapter of security, the redemption of Jesus Christ for sin is not reversible. And that's good news. Jesus Christ saved you, you're saved. And it's a done deal. It's a finished thing. And that's eternal security. But the good news is what Adam did to us, in a sense, is reversible by what Christ did and the great work he accomplished. Notice in verse 16 then. In verse 16, he comes across with these words, And not as it was by the one that sinned, that's Adam, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. I think the best way to describe the verse would be, and uh, this is my poor homiletic and homiletical ability, but I, I think the best word I could use is the reach or the extent of these two acts. That's what he's talking about. What's the reach of this act? You know, what, what, what happened with what Adam did? How, how far does it reach? And what does it do? And what did Jesus Christ do? So in verse 15, you have the offense of one. In verse 16, you have the one that sinned. You see, in reading the text, I see, at least as a pastor, preacher, student of the Word, I see a distinction. I see in verse 15, the emphasis is on the sin. And in verse 16, the emphasis is on the sinner. It's on the sin in one verse, and on the other, it's the sinner. And that's important, even though the same truth applies, one sin, one man at one time. The bottom line truth is that the sins of Adam's whole life, and that's important to note, the sins of Adam's whole life is not imputed to you. You don't have all the sin that Adam committed all through the years that he lived after he got kicked out of the garden to have to deal with. That's not yours. There's one sin that Adam passed on to you and I, and that was that sin of condemnation, him being the federal head. That one sin brought condemnation. But the fact is, this verse is saying, however, the righteousness that is imputed to us by Jesus Christ through the free gift of God's grace, now listen to me, covers not just that one offense done in Adam, but the many offenses, all the sin that you would ever carry out. You see that in verse 16? That's what verse 16 is saying, and that's what's important by it. Not as it were, was by one that sin, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one the condemnation, but the free gift is of many trespasses. Many trespasses. Everybody who sinned and all that they sinned, Jesus Christ dealt with all of them. You don't have to deal with all the sins. You see, if you're looking at it and say, well, Jesus Christ died for Adam's sin. So here Adam's sin passed on to us all condemnation. So Christ died for that. Well, you've got a lot else to answer for on the other side because all of us sin continuously. What's going to happen to that sin? And this verse says, oh, no, no, Jesus Christ took care of that too. The many offenses. Remember the many who had trusted Christ as Savior? The many which is all under Adam? The many who've trusted Christ as Savior? This is the many who've trusted Christ. He is saying all of their sins have been dealt with under the justification act of Jesus Christ and His redemption on the cross of Calvary. That's what verse 16 says. And so the death of Christ on the cross took more than just taking care of Adam's problem that appeared in us. What Jesus Christ did took care of all sin for all people for all time. But when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're the ones who enjoy the benefit of it. Jesus Christ died for all sins, but it's those who've been justified and have trusted Christ as Savior who realize it. For instance, you sit here this morning and you've never been saved by the grace of God. Let me tell you something that you will not appreciate at this moment. Repeat, if you're sitting here and you've never been saved by the grace of God, you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll not understand what I'm about to tell you. But unless and someday you trust Christ, you will. Your sins have already been paid for. Christ has already died for you. He has paid the price the Father demanded. He's met it in its totality. You sit here this morning having all your sins paid for. Then the question is, why have not you become a believer? Why have you not become a Christian? Why have you not looked upon the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Lord, and your Master? Why haven't you? I tell you. Because in your heart of hearts, you have not bowed to the truth that Christ died for you. See, it's one thing to say, Oh, for God so loved the world, it gave His only begotten Son to whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, yeah, that's the world. And we somehow take ourselves out of the world and stick ourselves over here in a corner and say, But that's the world. This is me. Let me tell you what you are. You are a part of the world for which he died. 
and he died for all the sins of all the world for all time. Your sins have been paid for. There's no need for you to die in your sin and go to hell. There's no need for that. And if you do, you'll go there because of your own choices, not because of what Christ and God has done, because God has, in fact, done all he intends to do in sending his son, perfect sacrifice for the sins of mankind. He's paid your sin debt. All he wants you to do is accept it as a gift of his grace. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's all he asks. Confess with your mouth. Acknowledge you're a sinner. And understand Christ died for your sin and your sinfulness. When that happens, then salvation can be yours. I was musing this week. I don't muse very often. But I did, I did some music. I got caught up in just thinking about some things. I got to thinking, and though this is not the exact equivalent of it, I was in thinking about, and in my preparation of the message, I was thinking about the scale that our society uses in penalties for crimes committed. Now, this isn't true, but this is the way I was thinking. I was thinking, for example, a man goes to prison or to jail for 10 days for stealing a dollar. Now, I know that's not true. You can uh, you can steal half a billion dollars out of Tyco and it won't matter. You know, I know how that is. I understand. But the point is, that's the way it used to be. You steal and you paid for it. You steal a dollar, you spent 10 days in jail. You spent 90 days in jail if you would spend or steal $10. Then it was that you went into a person's house without their knowledge, and that means you were breaking and entering, and you took possessions out of that house. You spend two years in jail. And when I was a kid, I know people who spent a lot longer than that for stealing bicycles off back porches. I mean, gracious. Those kids uh, seem like they spent 15 years in, in some kind of child penal institution. But it's changed now. Things seem to be a lot more lenient. But, but here's the point, and here's where my musing went. No court in the world, not a single court that you can name. You can go to the most liberal state in the United States. There's not a court in the Union. There's not a court in the Republic. There's not a court in the United States of America that would condemn a man to death for taking an apple off of a tree or any other fruit. In America, you could actually take all the fruit off the tree, dig the tree up, and take that tree and all the trees that went with it in the garden, and they wouldn't put you to death for it. But Adam took one evident bite from one evident fruit and was condemned to death. Am I right? That's right. Why, if God is so just, why did God do that? Very simple. Remember I started talking about the ramification for sin? God the Father knew way back then the ramification for Adam's sin. First man he creates, represents all mankind, is the federal head of all human beings. When God placed him in that garden and gave him that direct command, it was full evidence that God was saying, I am staking within you a confidence to be, as it were, a representative for all the human race. Take your responsibility gravely. And Adam didn't. Yet God did just that. He condemned this man to death because of the full ramification of this. What's interesting to me, that with God there is no first and second and third degree sins. All sins has the possibilities beyond the power of our human calculations or expectations or prospects. Original sin spread into millions and millions of sins since it was committed. And what's more than that, we in this country hear so very little of sin revealed in the depraved human heart. This week I, I ran across in one of the books in my library, I ran across a review of a, of a book that was written by a former Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. And uh, this thing really jarred me. The book was entitled Strange Lands and Friendly People. I won't read all this to you, but let me let me tell you the, the scenario that sets this article and review up. Uh, what it was, um, the justice went, to, William O. Douglas went to Iran, and uh, he interviewed an old tribesman, an old tribesman in this community in Iran. And uh, this tribesman uh, reviewed in his mind uh, an event that took place in 1936. 
And in this 1936 event, what was happening was the Iranian government was forcing the tribes of Iran uh, to move from their hill country into villages and communities so that they could more control them. You know, they uh, assumed tax them. You know, I don't know. That's what everything is about, I guess, taxing, you know. So they wanted to bring them down where they could corral them, keep tabs on them, check on them, and then tax them. And so what happened, the tribes people rebelled against it. They simply said, you know, we're, we're not going to do that. We're not coming down there. We own this land up on the hills and the mountains, and we're staying up here. So the government of Iran sent a colonel over there. And here's how the story sets up. And again, I don't intend to read all this, but it goes like this. He says, the story was slow in coming from the old man. It took much persuasion and a promise that I'd never disclose his true identity. And finally, it poured from his lips, and he began to speak. Quote, some of our young men had been with the Khans at the fort. They were all killed. Our Khans were all hanged, and the army had won. The battle of resistance was almost over. A few days later, I saw a cloud of dust across the plain. Horsemen were coming on a gallop. As they came closer, I saw that they were army troops. A colonel was in the front, a command. He came right up to us, the colonel shouting orders. The men dismounted and started shooting. There were babies hanging in baskets in some of our tents. The soldiers put revolvers to their heads of the little ones and blew their brains out. Women were screaming from all the huts, and my wife was cowering in a corner. I stood before her. Two soldiers rushed toward us. I seized a knife, and then there were shots. I was knocked to the earth and lost consciousness. When I awoke, my wife was lying across me. Her warm blood ran down my chest. She had died from a bullet wound in her breast. I had been shot through the neck and was left for dead. I did not move because the colonel and his troops were still there. I could see them through my half-closed eyes, and may not believe me when I tell you but I, what I saw, but by the bread of my own house, I swear this to be the truth. There was a long silence before the old man continued. Tears filled his eyes, and he began to explain. The colonel had ordered some of our young men to be held as captives. Meanwhile, he built a fire of charcoal. I soon discovered what he was doing. He had an iron plate so big, indicating with his hand movement, a plate about eight inches long, about six inches wide, and a quarter of an inch thick. He heated this until it was red hot in the charcoal. He had his men bring up one of the lures, that's one of the tribesmen of their community. Two soldiers held the prisoner, one on each side. A third stood with a sword behind the prisoner. The colonel gave the signal. The man with the sword, sword swung. As the sword hit the prisoner's neck, the colonel shouted, Run. The head dropped to the ground. The colonel pressed the red-hot plate on the stub of the man's neck, and the headless man took a step and fell dead. Give me the tall one, the colonel shouted. He can run better than that. The same process was repeated. The tall man, when beheaded, ran a few paces. Lure after lure was beheaded again and again. The plate was heated, the red hot, and the slap, and the stamp, and the stub of the neck. One of the colonels was slow with the plate. The blood shot sometimes five to six feet in the air. The old man had to stop. He wet his lips. They began and continued to talk and speak, and to shout at the victims to do better, that they could run faster, they could go further. The old man paused again. His anger was swelling as he relieved his experience, relived his experience. The old man seemed exhausted when telling the story, and he poured the tea from an ancient pot, and we sipped in silence. And after he had finished, I asked, What of yourself? He said, I dragged myself to a spring in a ravine, and I washed my wounds. I was too weak to move for two days and two nights. Then I went back to bury the dead. Every man, woman, and child in our village had been killed. Not a single living soul was left, and sadly the vultures had gotten there before I did. What happened to the colonel, I inquired. Oh, the colonel. He became a general and later minister of war in Iran. He is still alive as the writing. Very much so. He lives in Tehran. The loot he got from our villages and others filled dozens, dozens of his coffers. He's a very rich man today. As so Douglas read this and listened to this and wrote it down, he said, I became angry and more angry. 
and as I read it and thought upon it, I had never heard such cruel, vile, wicked, perverted behavior of an official of any government in all of my life. I remind you of something when I read that, that it should do the same thing to you and me. As as much as we hate that kind of thing, it goes on all the time. I said to people, our men, last night in our cottage prayer meeting section when the men were meeting, you know, to think of Saddam Hussein who tied men's hands behind their back and ran them through wood chippers, tree limb chippers, just so he could enjoy the cruelty, wickedness that he did. Only bespeaks of how wicked, how ungodly sin really is. And that's sin that's been, as it were, left to itself. And I remind you of this. God hates sin so much that it's, and its ramifications that it only took one sin to condemn the whole human race to eternity lost. Just one. You see, what we've done in our society is we've minimized the effect of sin. We get the idea that it's, it's, it's no big thing. I spoke to someone just a few weeks ago and... Uh, I brought up the subject of sin. I was studying for this message and looking into it and what I was going to say and some illustrations I was writing out. And somebody mentioned the fact this person who is not a Christian said, Hey, preacher, you guys ought to leave our fun things alone. Sin's about the only thing left that we can have fun with. And I thought to myself, you know, my friend, you're, you're sadly deceived. Sin is a counterfeit killer. It makes great promises and offers great things out there in the future somewhere, but it never delivers. And Satan is the kind of guy that sells the product well because he gets people to believe that it's okay. That's what people do. Everybody does it. Therefore, it makes it okay. It doesn't make it okay. Sin is sin. And the worst of all the sins is the sin to deny that I have sin in the beginning. And there are people like that, and there may be people in this auditorium this morning saying, Hey, look, preacher, you don't know me. I'm a good person. I am a good person. I am religious. I've gone to church all my life. I have not missed church. I am loyal to church. I'm glad for you, my friend. But if you have not been born again, you were born a sinner. And you will die a sinner. And it's important for you to understand that you sin because you are of a sin nature. You see, it's not your sins that you commit. You can go out and get drunk, shoot up drugs, and, and do all the things the world calls fun. That's not what's going to send you to hell. What's going to send you to hell is the failure to believe on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, what He did for you regarding your sin. You see, He's already died for you. He's already paid the price. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. And I say to you this morning, when we give the invitation and begin to sing in just a moment, just as I am, the thing for you to do, if you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you've never trusted Him as Savior, I don't care how religious you are, I don't care how sinless you think you are, if you've never trusted Christ in a simple act of childlike faith, you need to come this morning, walk down this aisle, and meet me here, and I'll ask you a simple question. Why are you coming? You need to say, I've come to trust and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as my only Savior. Heavy people here will take you to one of our counseling rooms sadly and quietly show you how from the Scripture you can be absolutely sure you're born again and saved by the grace of God. But it all begins with an understanding of the root problem, and that is of sin. Born in consequence of our relationship, our union to Adam. When we're born again, we're put into a union with Christ. The Scriptures simply refer to it as being in Christ. So you're in one of two places today. You're either in Adam and you're on your way to hell or you're in Christ on your way to heaven. I hope this morning that you will understand that we're not here to badmouth you and we're not here to criticize you and we're not here to make fun of who you are and what you are and being a sinner. Because the good news is this, to you and to everybody else, if you're here as a sinner, as you are, we all once were. And as I am and others in this room are, you can be also. Saved by the grace of God, not by works of righteousness which you or I have done or could do. Salvation is not of works. It's by a work that Jesus Christ finished a long time ago on the cross of Calvary and His resurrection from the grave. His gift, His grace, 
His love toward mankind is and was so great. God provided not only for the redemption of one man from one sin, but for the redemption and salvation of all men from all sin. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.18 says. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. The wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself and listen, and not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. I read across a phrase this week and I wrote it in my Bible and I'll keep it there I guess as long as I live because I think it captures and describes something of a lost sinful man's attitude. Listen to this. Quote, they are cocky with a borrowed courage. Cocky with a borrowed courage. I got thinking about that because you see, if they, as they are lost and sinful, if they only knew three things, might change everything. Not just know it, but embrace it. One, if they only knew that they're dying. They're sinners. Romans 5.12 says, As surely as sin entered into the world, death came with it. And so everybody that is a sinner dies. Every baby that dies, as it were, dies because we're sinners. That's the only way you can account for it. Baby didn't get up and drink and shoot drugs. and what, The baby died because the baby was born a sinner. A person born into this world who has no mental capacity whatsoever to understand anything that's going on in the world around them, they were born sinners, and many of them die having no comprehension or understanding. Does God have mercy in those cases? I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure He does. But they, were, they died because they were sinners. That's what death says. That's what every cemetery in our county, our community, our world says. Every time you see a cemetery, every time you see a funeral, you ought to remind yourself of this. That's the consequences of sin. For as by one man sin entered into the world, and so death passed upon all men. Reason why? Because we all sin back there in Adam. That's why we have cemeteries. That's why people die. And that's why Mrs. Luttrell is dead. Gracious lady, absolutely. When she came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, absolutely she changed and was in, uh, in unbelievably great ways that they would tell you changed. But death came to her because she was born a sinner. And everybody in this room, it is appointed unto man, woman, boy, and girl once to die. And after this, the judgment. And that judgment is only valid and useful and appropriate is in the case of you not trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that judgment referred to there is there's a judgment, if you want to call it the judgment seat of Christ for the believer. I believe believers go there. And I believe that we, as it were, receive our rewards there. But the fact is, if you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, you better understand this. You're going to die. Could die today, could die tomorrow, maybe 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years. But you will die. And the second thing you have to understand is that you are at present destined for hell. And eventually the lake of fire, where those folks will be taken out of hell and cast into the lake of fire forever. And then the third thing is there are no options other than the Lord Jesus Christ having died for you on the cross and made the way of salvation open to you by repentance and faith in his finished work. That's all there is. There's no way around it. You can join all the churches between here and Texas. You can pray every prayer that's ever been written in a book. You can attend every church that is possible to attend in a lifetime. You can go down every aisle. You can be baptized in every baptistry. You can give all the money you've ever had and all that you might ever see if you could borrow it. It won't change one thing about you being born a sinner and dying that way unless you repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I say to you that there's a strange silence about this issue in our country. You hear so little about sin. And I think the reason is because we don't run people off. We, we want our churches full and filled. But let me tell you something. Let me ask you a simple question. Would you rather have a full church or an empty church based on which truth you taught, truth or error? Because if we fail to teach the truth and our churches don't get full, we feel hell with people who didn't get the truth. So we can either now stand up for the truth that the problem with man is a sin problem and we have to address that no matter what people want to hear. It's a sin problem and we must address it. 
or we can keep our eyes closed and our mouth shut and let hell fill up with people who didn't hear the truth. I hope this morning that you've accepted what the scriptures say. And if you're here without Christ, I hope, I pray, that you'll not leave here as you came. And if you're here and you've trusted Christ as Savior, I hope that you'll take the message to other people that you know and family and friends. Because I'm convinced there are people in churches all over this country who don't really understand the truth of Romans chapter 5, 14 and 15. Thank you for being here. Our Father in heaven, as we come to the close of this service and the invitation begins, I pray as we sing the invitation song, just as I am, I pray that our friends here in this room who have never believed on you as personal Savior might realize and be under conviction of your spirit that what they've heard they need to address in their own life. And the addressing of it is that they need to understand Christ died for them, not just for the world, which in a sense may be a generic way of stating the truth, but Christ died for them personally. And I pray this morning, God, that your spirit will draw men, women, boys, and girls to yourself in salvation. So as we sing this song, may its truth be true with us. Come just as we are. For believers who ought to come for baptism and church membership and for prayer, I pray that at this invitation they'd make their move likewise. Speak to our hearts, work in our lives, and bring forth the fruit you've ordained for this hour. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? If you need a hymn book, it's 282. If not, I invite you to sing just as I am without one plea. And if God has spoken to your heart about your personal need and you need to come, we want you to come. And if you have already settled in your heart matters that God's spoken to you as a believer, then in your seat, I hope you'll pray that those who are here without Christ may come to know Him even now. As we sing, you believers pray and sing out from your heart. And those who are here without Christ, please come. Let us help you as we sing together. 282 verse 1 and together please. Just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Thank you so much for your attention this morning. I appreciate your being here with us, and I do hope very sincerely you'll be back with us for the evening service tonight. I do appreciate very much your prayers for the services, and I hope that this evening many of the men will be able to join us at 6 and our 545 downstairs for prayer, and 530 for prayer, and then up here for the 6 o'clock service, and Brother Mike Foster will be able to share with us then. So I hope you'll come and be with us then. Let's bow our heads in prayer, and we'll be gone. Our Father, we thank you so very much for your goodness, your grace to us. Thank you for the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for all you've done and all you're doing. And Father, I pray right now that you may work in every heart the truth that we have seen from your word. And I pray, give us the certainty and the assurance of our own salvation if we have believed on Christ. Help us to be aware that it's real. It's not just some religious jargon, that there's some reality to it. And, Father, I pray that you might also help us to share this message. 
Help us to recognize that every human being born on this earth, no matter how good they are, no matter how gracious they are, no matter how religious they are, they are born sinners. They must be born again. And I pray that you might help us not to compromise on this great fundamental truth. And I pray that you'll bless this truth as it continues to ring through the corridors of our heart. Bless Brother Mike Foster as he shares with us tonight the great work, the great ministry that you've given him as a missionary to establish independent Baptist churches. So we use him and speak through him to us tonight and stir our hearts to a new level of commitment to this great cause and help us even today to be aware of what you want each of us to do that we might make a difference. Help us on this Tuesday to begin even in our own state here to vote and help us, Father, I pray, to be a witness. Help us to share the gospel. Help us to pray for one another and help us to stand with those who are in need as with the Luttrell family today. Guide us as we go now. May your grace abound in every life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.